man was out for a walk and he came to a bridge and saw another man standing at the edge of the bridge, kind of looking over into the water below. And he walks up to him and he begins a conversation with him. And at some point in the conversation, he says, so what religion are you? Are you Christian, Hindu, Jewish? What are you? The man replies, Christian. First man says, really, me too. Are you Protestant or Catholic or Orthodox? He says, Protestant. Really? Me too. What denomination are you? The man replies, Baptist. Really? Me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? <laughs> the man says, Northern Baptist. Wow, small world, me too. Northern conservative Baptist or Northern liberal Baptist? Northern conservative Baptist. Me too. Northern conservative Baptist Great Lakes region or Northern conservative Baptist Eastern region? The man replies, Northern conservative Baptist Great Lakes region. Wow, small world, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? The man replies, Council of 1912. The first man pushes him over the edge and yells, Die, heretic! <laughs> it was a joke, yes. <laughs> Nobody was harmed in the making of that joke. It's not a true story. <clears throat> but the reason we laugh at a joke like that is that even though it's ridiculous, it does sort of get at the truth that we like to find the things that are different and let them divide us. That even when there's so much in common in Christianity, we highlight the differences and can often magnify well beyond what they should be magnified. Well, that's not Jesus' wish or prayer for us. So this morning, what we want to do is we want to take a look at a prayer that Jesus is praying for Calvary Church this morning. So if you have your Bible, would you turn to the book of John, chapter 17? Book of John, chapter 17. It's page 766 in the Bibles the church provides. There's one in the rack in front of you or underneath your seat if you're up in the balcony. Love to have you follow along as we look. John chapter 17. And this, uh, I am sad to say, is our last sermon in the Gospel of John. It's been a fantastic book. I have had uh, more fun preaching through the Gospel of John. And it's one of those books that you think you know. And then you get in and you dig deeper and further into it and you think, wow, God is amazing. Well, here we are in John 17. What we've done this year is we followed Jesus and John's narrative through the year so that we could get to Easter with John. And then we've taken some time out this summer to really study John 14, 15, 16, and 17, which is what's known as the Upper Room Discourse. <clears throat> now, this is taking place, what we're about to read, on the night before Jesus is crucified. The next day is Good Friday. And as you can imagine, with such an important event, Jesus will be leaving his disciples, going to the cross. 
that he does what we would expect him to do on the last night that he has with them. He goes back through the most important things that he wants them to remember, and then he closes in prayer. John chapter 17 is his closing prayer, the last prayer that he will pray with his disciples and for his disciples. The next day he will leave, and the mission of taking the gospel to the world will be on their shoulders. Now, what we're about to look at this morning is the very last thing that Jesus utters in his last prayer for his disciples before he leaves. I'm going to read verses 20 to 26. Jesus says in praying to the Father, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. This is Jesus' last statement. This is his last words of his prayer. From this point, he will leave the upper room, go to the Garden of Gethsemane, be arrested, taken to spend the night on trial and in prison, and then the next day be crucified. What's interesting about the very last words of his prayer uh, is that the prayer is not simply for the 11 men who are in the upper room with him. He says, my prayer is not for them alone, but for all who will believe. Do you know who that is? That's us. If you're here and you are a believer in Jesus, He was praying for us on the last night before he was crucified. Of all the things that could have been going through his mind, of all the concerns that he would have had for his own welfare, the thing he was most focused on is us. See, the Bible tells us that it was for the joy set before him that he was willing to endure a crucifixion. And on the night before that's to happen, he's thinking about Calvary Church. He's thinking about those who will gather together in his name. This is the joy that he was looking forward to, that there would be people from all over, all different backgrounds, having come together because of Christ, that his death was not an accident. He was dying to give new life to us. And so what's most on his heart and mind is us, you and I. This is the purpose for which he would die. And so when I say that Jesus is praying for us today, 
This is what I mean. This is his prayer for us. So what is he praying for us? Well, it says in verse 21 that all of them may be one. He's praying that Calvary Church would be one. The idea here is the idea of unity. He's praying that we would be united. Now, unity is one of those things that's hard to define. It's tough to put a definition with it, but it's one of those things that you sort of know it when you see it. So instead of trying to give you a definition of unity, let me demonstrate for you what unity looks like in a local church. And the best example to use of this is the church in Jerusalem in the first century that's described in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. That church, it is said of them, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many miraculous wonders and signs were done by the apostles. All believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything that they had. That's unity. That's a church that is one one heart, one mind, gladly meeting together, enjoying one another's fellowship, being gathered together to hear the word of the Lord, sharing their possessions with each other. That's what Jesus is praying for in John 17. That's what unity looks like. As a comparison, let me show you what disunity looks like. And the best example of that is also a church from the first century, the church in Corinth. Listen to what Paul says to the believers there. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there might be no divisions among you and that you might be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says hey, I follow Paul. Another says, well, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. But is Christ divided? You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings, your church meetings, when you get together as a church, they do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? 
Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. That's disunity. That's not what Jesus is praying for. In the church in Corinth, people were coming together and they were fighting about the worship services. Each person was coming to worship wanting to get out of it what they wanted to get out of it. They were fighting about communion. Each one of them wanted to be communion to be the way they wanted it to be. They were fighting about money, taking each other to court. There were factions and groups among the church. People had sort of gathered together in their little group and said, we're over here and we're not with them. There was gossip and rumors, quarreling and jealousy and fighting. People were coming to church to get what they could get out of it. That's the church in Corinth. Jesus is praying for the church be like the church in Jerusalem where people are coming together to share gladly with one another, to approach church as a means by which we can serve others and experience God's presence in our midst, to be generous, to enjoy celebrating communion together for the sake of it being the Lord's Supper. Jesus' prayer for Calvary Church this morning is that we might not be like the church in Corinth, that we might be like the church in Jerusalem, that church might be a place where we come together to serve others and not simply see how we can be served, that it might be a place in which we join together and be one, being united and unified. This is Jesus' prayer, and it's the last thing that he prays for. Now, why does he pray this way? Why is unity so important? Of all the things Jesus has had to say, of all the things that he's wanted to communicate, why does he end his sermon or his prayer with the idea of unity? Well, look in verse 21. He's praying that we may be one, and then halfway through, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me. Now look, of the two churches, the one in Corinth and the one in Jerusalem, which of those two would you rather be part of? Jerusalem. So would everybody else. Which church do you think, if a non-Christian walked into their assembly, would be more likely to think, yeah, Jesus must actually be from the Father and he must have died to give new life. Which of those two churches would show that? Jerusalem. I mean, after all, who would believe in Jesus if Peter and John, two of his disciples, were constantly fighting with each other, stabbing each other in the back, spreading gossips and rumors about each other, forming factions and trying to undercut the other person? If you saw that, wouldn't you think, well, what a bunch of nonsense this is. Who wants to believe in Jesus if that's the case? So it is with the church in Corinth. With all of this infighting and divisions and disunity. But the church in Jerusalem is this beautiful picture that Jesus has come from the Father. The language of so that the world may believe so that they might believe, that 
exact language is found only one other time in John's gospel. It's when Jesus performs his greatest miracle apart from his own resurrection. And that is in the raising of Lazarus from the dead. That right before he performs this stupendous miracle, this jaw-dropping, nobody's seen anything like this before, he's going to take a man who's been dead for three days and bring him back to life. Before he does that, he prays, Father, do this through me so that they might believe. That was the purpose of the miracle. Jesus wasn't here to sort of do all sorts of cool signs and wonders so that we would politely clap and appreciate who he was. It was so that we would realize, wait a minute, this person's been sent by God the Father. This is God with us. Well, where is that kind of stupendous, jaw-dropping miracle today? Jesus says, you know where that is? When you walk into a church and you see people who love each other. You see, the world can't do that. The world can't put together a group of people and get rid of rumors and gossip and backbiting and fighting and factions and divisiveness. Humanly speaking, all groups end up in that place. Except if God is present. And the great miracle that the world cannot duplicate is for a group of diverse people to come together and to be one. And Jesus says when that happens, people will believe. Just like when Lazarus was raised from the dead, some people just said, look, there is no other explanation except Jesus must be from the Father. So it is with a church that's one. When someone walks in and experiences that kind of warmth, that kind of welcome, that kind of mutual love, that kind of serving, the only explanation is surely the Jesus that they believe in must be from God. And when you look at the church in Corinth and you look in the church in Jerusalem, isn't that what happened? We don't have any record in the book of 1 Corinthians of anybody in the community of Corinth seeing the church at Corinth and coming to faith. But with the church in Jerusalem, what does it say? And the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. It doesn't say they went out and launched some great evangelistic campaign. What it says is, is they were so united that people were drawn to that warmth and they saw Christ in the middle of that unity. And they came to faith. That's what Jesus is praying. He's praying that we at Calvary Church might be one. Because in many ways, there's no greater miracle than that. So how does that happen? How is unity produced? Do we just try to think harder about being one? Do we just try to try harder? How does that happen? Well, in Jesus' prayer, there seems to be four things that produce this kind of God-given unity. And it just so happens that these four things turn out to be a summary of everything that Jesus has been teaching in the Upper Room Discourse. The first one is found in verse number 20. Jesus is praying for those who will believe in me through their message, singular. The idea here is, is that as we believe the common message, we are, uni we are united. This is a reference to John chapter 14. 
And in John chapter 14, Jesus said the message is this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That as we embrace that message, not multiple messages, one message, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through Jesus. When we believe that and embrace that one message, unity is produced. That's John chapter 14. The second way in which unity is produced is verse 21. Jesus says, may they also be in us. May they also be in us. That's a reference to John chapter 15, where Jesus was praying that we might remain in him, remain in my love. And what he's saying here is, is that as we as a church remain dependent upon Christ and produce the fruit of righteousness, it unifies us. I mean, how many of you, when David stood up here and told the story about his Uncle Bill, felt drawn to him, felt connected to him? That's what he's talking about. What if David had stood up here and said, well, I just took Uncle Bill, and despite all of his education, I just showed him how wrong he was, and then he started to believe. Well, that we might feel a little bit put off by that. What did he say? We've just been depending on Christ and praying. We've remained in him and waited, and the fruits of righteousness have been produced. And Uncle Bill has come to faith, and that unites us together, and we celebrate. That's what Jesus is saying, is that if we're serving in our own power, well, that will separate us. But if we as a church are dependent upon Christ, that unites us. That's John 15. The third way in which unity is produced, verse number 22. I have given them the glory that you gave me. Now, that's kind of a confusing statement until you sort of read it in the context of all of what John is saying. When John talks about glory... He's talking about the revelation of who Jesus is. And this is referring to John chapter 16, where specifically the Holy Spirit comes and through the Word of God reveals Jesus to us. And what Jesus is saying here is, is as you remain committed to my Word, my glory is revealed and you will be united. And as a church, as we stand preaching, teaching, studying, living, memorizing the Word of God. It produces unity. The fourth way is in verse 26. Jesus says, I have made, known, made you known to them and will continue to make you known. Speaking of the Father. This is referencing something that has been a theme throughout the entire Upper Room Discourse, but specifically in John chapter 17. And that is that as we pray in Jesus' name, He will ask the Father on our behalf, and God the Father will manifest Himself through Christ to answer our prayers. And when that happens, we will know God more deeply. And so in John 17, as Jesus is praying, 
the Father is being revealed. And he says, when that happens, when you devote yourselves to prayer, God continues to work and we are united together. These are the four ways in which Jesus says that unity is produced. That as we cling to the common message that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him. As we as a church continue to do, to depend on Jesus, to do good works that only he can do through us, unity is produced. As we cling to his word and believe it and teach it and study it, unity is produced. And as we give ourselves to prayer so that God might continue to manifest himself in mighty ways among us, unity is produced. This is what Jesus is praying for. And I said at the beginning of the sermon that Jesus is praying this prayer for Calvary Church this morning. See, I don't think it's an accident that we're in John 17 this morning. You see, Jesus demands unity. That's what he demands from Calvary, that we be one. Now, not just unity for the sake of unity or unity at all costs. If for whatever reason Calvary Church (coughs) stops adhering to the message that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him, there ought not be unity. We shouldn't be unified about that if we abandon that message. Likewise, if we stop relying upon Christ to perform great deeds in and through us, if we stop being connected to his word and we start standing up here preaching other things or having nice conversations or fill our Sunday school classes with great psychology but not the word of God, if we stop praying, if those things happen, we're not to be united about that. But when those things are present, Jesus is quite clear in 1 Corinthians 3 that he wants unity. And that any person who destroys God's church, 1 Corinthians 3 says, God will destroy. You see, it's too easy. After we agree to the message and to relying upon Christ and to his word as the basis for what we do and to prayer, it's too easy to allow preferences in worship in music, in personnel, in programming, to divide us. Jesus says that's not a reason not to be unified. None of us are going to like everything that happens at the church. That's not a reason not to be unified. There ought not to be gossip and rumors and quarreling and jealousy. Of course we're not going to get along about everything. But if we're committed to the message that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through him, if we are relying upon God to produce fruits that only he can produce, if we are committed to the word of God, it doesn't mean you have to agree with every interpretation that you hear in every room of this building. But if the word of God is central to what's going on, if we are committed to prayer, Jesus says there must be unity. This is what I want. This is what I long for. And I look at this church and I think, Yeah, we've got room to grow, but we are absolutely committed to the fact that Jesus is the only way to the Father. He is the one source of truth and life in this world. It's not found anywhere else. I look around this church and I see, look at this candle that's lit. This is an evidence of the fact that God is doing mighty things here. Did you hear the story about Uncle Bill? Have we not shared stories of God doing amazing things? Not because of us, 
but because it's him that we're relying upon him. Is not the word of God preached here, taught among this building, used in our small groups, part of our ministry. We've got a women's Bible study starting in a few days, all about the gospel of Matthew. It's the word of God. And have we not been praying all year for three non-Christian friends and family members? Are we not trying to build a prayer garden to help facilitate prayer? Jesus is saying, when we come together as a church, if those things are present, there's no reason for gossip. There's no reason for rumors. There's no reason for quarreling and jealousy and factions. That we're not all going to get exactly what we want. But when we come together, we must be one. And Jesus says, when that happens, the world will know. They will know. And through the unity of Calvary Church that God has given, not that we have earned, not that we have done, God has made himself known in this community. And people are and have come to faith. This is Jesus' prayer, not because Calvary is somehow broken, but he's saying it's so easy to slip into these patterns that he's continuing to pray for us this morning that we might not fall into those kinds of things. Because it's human, isn't it? It's easy to do. It's easy for all of us to do. And Jesus says, but I'm praying for you. I'm praying for Calvary Church this morning. Don't let this happen. Continue on the path of unity. Not unity at all cost. Not unity if we abandon the message. Not unity if we throw away the word of God. Not unity if we stop praying. Not unity if we stop producing fruit. But in every other area that we might be one. Jesus says, when that happens, the only explanation will be is that surely I have been sent by the Father. And that is the greatest miracle of all. And the city will see, and the world will see, and people will continue to come to faith.